0: Again, it's wonderful to be here, and I'm glad that there's so many of us who can uh, attend this uh, lecture today and this presentation. Just before I introduce the speaker, I want to share just quickly a a little bit of something about my life. In 2005, I was given a special permission as a priest by Cardinal George to live and work in the country of El Salvador. I I lived there for five years. I ran a home of... um, of orphaned and abandoned children called nuestros pequeños hermanos, our little brothers and sisters. I ran our four homes in El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua, and Honduras. When I lived there, I fell in love with the Salvadorian people, and every time I had a visitor come visit me, and I had quite a few visitors in my five years, I always made sure that part of their visit was not only the orphanage, but every visitor that came, I accompanied them to what I call the holy sites of Oscar Romero and of the Jesuits. And so we'd go to his home, the chapel in which he was murdered and martyred, to the UCA, to the museum there, to uh, his tomb at the cathedral. Every time I went, I learned something more about him. And he quickly became a hero, and an inspiration to me like he has been for so many of the Salvadorian people. I'm a new bishop, and one thing I really didn't know about bishops is that when you become a bishop, they have you create a crest, kind of a shield, and it's supposed to identify who you are in your your life and your spiritual life. And so I worked with a gentleman, a deacon, who helped design a crest for me, and he had this amazing idea. And I loved how it turned out. Right in the middle of my crest, there's a sprig of rosemary. And the word rosemary in Spanish is Romero. And as we wrote up the shield explanation, the explanation is this that sprig of rosemary, Romero, is in the middle of my shield to honor Oscar Romero and his inspiration that he's given to me, and also to honor the people of el salvador and central america again there is something always new to learn about this extraordinary saint our new saint oscar romero so it's my honor and my privilege now to uh, present to you our speaker who will help us learn a little bit more about his life his legacy and his theology michael lee is an associate professor of theology at fordham university he was born in Miami and his parents are from Puerto Rico. He holds an MA from the University of Chicago and a BA, MA, and PhD from the University of Notre Dame. He is the author of Bearing the Weight to Salvation: The Soteriology of Ignacio Ella Correa, and Revolutionary Saint and the Theology or the Theological Legacy of Oscar Romero. His commentary has appeared in a wide variety of venues, including The New York Times, Rolling Stone, El Faro Académico from El Salvador. He's also appeared on networks, including CNN, Al Jazeera America, ABC New York, National Public Radio, and Radio France International. So together let us give a warm welcome to our speaker, Michael Lee.
1: Thank you so much for that introduction. It's truly an honor to be here uh, to speak of this wonderful man, this wonderful saint of ours. and. In doing so, it's also this remarkable homecoming of sorts for me. 20 years ago, I wandered Hyde Park as a student in the Divinity School. My, how things change. So it's a real real privilege to be here. Monseñor Oscar Arnulfo Romero finally after so many years after his tragic assassination on march 24th 1980 he was canonized a saint it was long overdue and it was an unbelievable ceremony to see all these people gathered in saint peter's i had the great privilege of attending and it was truly an experience of the global church there to celebrate these new saints among them Monsignor Romero and the banners you see placed on Saint Peter's right next to his own beloved uh, Paul VI who if you go to the hospitalito in in San Salvador you see uh, Romero's room like it was when he was alive with the little picture of Paul VI on his nightstand. After 38 years, many considered this canonization long overdue. And while there was great joy on the part of many, there was concern uh, on the part of others. What does this canonization mean? Might it mean that his legacy is somehow compromised? Could people use his legacy to further their own agendas? I guess for myself, the picture was crystallized a couple of years earlier when I had the privilege of also being in San Salvador at the Romero Mass that's still, still celebrated in the crypt. When the announcement came that uh, Monsignor Romero had been recognized as a martyr and so his beatification would take place and the process to canonization was, was sure to be finalized now. And I remember the great jubilation in the cathedral when it was announced. And then kind of after the hoopla died down, an elderly woman turned to me and she said, Si, pero, que van a hacer con nuestro Monseñor? What are they going to do with our Monseñor? And this is the concern, a concern that perhaps was exacerbated a little bit when the archdiocese unfurled their slogan uh, for the beatification Romero, martyr for love and as beautiful a sentiment as that can be it left others asking what, what does this mean as Jose Maria Tojeda who is a former rector at the UCA, the Central American University asked martyr for love of what? Right? and so a central question for us that comes out of this canonization is still who is St. Romero. Well, many might think of canonization as a closing of a book, the ending of a story. It's really the opposite that's the case. Sainthood and his recognition is only the beginning of a process of negotiation. For the church to ask, who was this saint, and what does he mean for us? Of course, perhaps we can remember the words of Dorothy Day, who, when asked about the possibility of her own canonization, uh, comically brushed it off with the question, hmm, don't call me saint, I don't want to be dismissed that easily. (laughs) Of course, Romero is recognized globally. He, his statue uh, occupies a place on the, the western wall of London's Westminster Abbey that has the statues of the 20th century martyrs. and There he is next to Martin Luther King and Dietrich Bonhoeffer as martyrs of our time. And in 1979, he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, losing to all people, losing to Mother Teresa that year. Tough year. (laughs) But can we get the close up? Can we get beyond the facade and really begin to ask, who was this man? Or even can we say, who wasn't this man? What is Oscar Romero's legacy for us today? Well, just in this afternoon, I I would like to suggest uh, three ideas, three ways that Romero has an important legacy for us today. As I began to work on my book about Romero, I, I wanted to ask, how might the church think differently AR, after Romero? And three themes emerged from this remarkable man's life and his teaching. And it is such a remarkable coincidence that we have not only wonderful theological uh, uh, thinking in his marvelous homilies and in his pastoral letters, but they're also combined with this extraordinary life, a life uh, decades as a priest and bishop and then those intense. Three years as Archbishop of San Salvador. The first of these ideas, I think, is how we might think about conversion. Romero's life modeled a kind of conversion of its own and he helps us, I believe, to think about conversion in our time in a new and dynamic way. Secondly, His ministry, his thinking was enveloped in the tumultuous years in El Salvador right before its civil war. And so how one acts in that uh, tremendous uh, conflict and in a polarized society illumines much about how we can think about faith and politics today. And finally, to think about martyrdom. The recognition of Monsignor Romero as a martyr uh, involved a process, especially thinking about that criteria of odium fidei. But in addition to Romero as a martyr, Romero himself had to preside over the funeral masses of six of his priests who were assassinated, and countless others, catechists and other church workers who were kidnapped, tortured, And killed. And so his preaching as well as his own witness give us a rich insight into the meaning of martyrdom today. And so briefly I'd like to touch on these points this afternoon in an effort to think about the legacy of this remarkable saint. And so conversion. Prometo's legacy involves a profound conversion experience. However, it's, it's a little different than uh, many uh, hold their, in their understanding of conversion. For in Romero, we certainly don't have a case of someone who goes from no faith at all to a powerful experience of faith. Monsignor Romero was born and raised in the Catholic Church. By the time he was 13, he was entering minor seminary, his lifelong vocation to the priesthood, decades of uh, a dedicated prayer life. This was not a journey from unbelief to belief, nor was it the remarkable journey of the kind of prodigal son decades he spent in his ministry, in his fervent life of prayer. If one reads his diaries, uh, one sees a, a passionate faith. In fact, if anything, his diaries and reflections show a kind of scrupulosity about his faith, always correcting himself for not praying enough, not doing enough. So we don't have a prodigal son here at all. So what can we say about conversion? What occurs in Romero's own life that gives us insights into a, a different lens uh, for conversion? Now, if if one has even a general understanding of the events in Romero's life, very often one hears, and if one has seen perhaps the Paulist film on Romero, one sees the figure of Rutilio Grande. Rutilio Grande was a Jesuit priest knew Romero well, even lived together for a time at the major seminary. And (coughs) his assassination uh, many point to as a turning point in Romero's ministry and in his life. And there's no question that the assassination of of Grande is, is a key, if not, as they say, a tipping point in Romero's life. But to get a fuller understanding of the transformation that occurs in Oscar Romero's life, we need to go back a little bit earlier in his ministry, and specifically go back to his ministry as he first becomes bishop in the Diocese of Santiago de Maria in 1970. It was a difficult time for him, (coughs) excuse me, his time as Auxiliary Bishop in San Salvador in 1970. There, he was known, as one biographer calls him, the Little Inquisitor, where that scrupulosity that was so characteristic of himself and his diaries was also reflected on those around him. He had difficult episodes, among them, in 1972, The Jesuit high school, the Externado San Jose, was doing social analysis in their classes, including an analysis of the structural inequalities of the country. Many parents heard about this teaching and were frightened, frightened that their sons were being indoctrinated in Marxism. And so they went to the auxiliary bishop who then published in Orientacion, the diocesan newspaper, an article about uh, literature of a, quote, known red origin being distributed at the Jesuit high school. This caused a national scandal. Hearings at the highest level uh, were conducted to investigate what exactly was going on at this Jesuit high school. And though, in the end, the teachers and the institution itself were exonerated, many remembered the difficult circumstances that uh, Romero instigated. In addition, in these years, Romero's vision of poverty was one of alleviation. One cannot portray Romero in this period as as hard-hearted, He had a deep, deep compassion for those who were poor. He would be known among those in the community who were suffering from alcoholism. They could always have an ear. Father Romero would speak to them. But he had no vision for how to change that poverty in his country, what the transformation might look like. Uh, beyond these individual relationships, and the appeal to those who had great amounts of wealth to convert and to be charitable for those. He was suspicious of the theology that was emerging in El Salvador at the time and even wrote a memo to uh, the head of the congregation of bishops in Rome complaining about the politicization of priests, among them, the Jesuit priest, John Sobrino, who was publishing his Christology's first works in Christology at the time. I'll have more to say about him later. And for those who were around at the time, it, it was said that during the priest's senate, Romero kept to himself, often sitting in the back of the room, arms folded, uh, he was not known to circulate much, but rather was rather isolated in his personality. This uh, personality then uh, moves on. And after four years in San Salvador, he is appointed Bishop of Santiago de Maria. And there uh, he encounters a remarkably new context for in Santiago María, he's no longer in the urban capital, but rather Santiago de María is in the heart of coffee country. It was a rural diocese, and so uh, you know, and much like his own childhood home, uh, Ciudad Barrios, um, that that was part of this uh, area, um, and so we have to explore this also as a kind of coming home for Romero. Now, the coffee harvest could be very difficult. Uh, it's back-breaking work with low wages in often difficult circumstances. With so much unemployment and underemployment, people would come from uh, all parts of the country to participate in this small window of time where the harvest was taking place, and there was work. After his first year, Monsignor Romero... Turned to his pastoral vicar when he noticed uh, many of the workers sleeping outside. He said, "Father, w- w- where do these people sleep?" He said, "Well, Monseigneur, wherever they can. Sometimes in the trees, sometimes on the ground. It, they have nowhere else. Hmm. It's awfully cold outside for them to be sleeping." Remember, uh, much of the good volcanic soil for the coffee harvest is done in the mountainous regions, in the mountainous soil. And so he said, well, we have this school that had been closed. Let's open this and welcome them in. And so that is precisely what they did. They opened this building, and many were able to seek refuge from the cold and have a simple cup of coffee uh, to warm them. And during that time, Romero would visit with them and hear their stories, hear their histories, hear about their families, hear about their mistreatment, hear about their long hours of work and their inability uh, to get fair wages. And these began to plant seeds in Romero's mind, began to change his awareness of the situation of his own country, of his own diocese. In 1977, of course, came a shocking announcement. The previous archbishop, Archbishop Chavez, had been bishop almost 40 years and was finally stepping down. And his replacement was none other than Oscar Romero. Now, for many, this was shocking. uh, that, That this one, who many remembered as the auxiliary who caused so many problems in the diocese, uh, many people with trepidation uh, heard this news. However, this, the, the announcement came in February of 1977, and just days before his official installment, we have that dramatic event. Father Rutilio Grande, along with 78-year-old Manuel Solórzano and 16-year-old Nelson Lemos were assassinated on the drive between Aguilares and El Paisnal, where Rutilio Grande worked. The assassination of this priest transformed Romero, took those seeds that had been planted in his experiences in Santiago de Maria, his realization of terrible suffering, and began to catalyze something. He made two key decisions after the assassination of Grande, Solosano, and Lemus. The first was the declaration of the Misa Unica, that on March twentieth, 1977, the funeral mass for these three victims would be the only mass in the entire diocese. This was met with great concern. Even fellow members of the Salvadoran Bishops' Conference scolded the new Archbishop. How can you do this? Don't politicize the liturgy. But for Romero, the drama that a priest had been assassinated needed to be responded to. In addition to this Misa Unica, he made the decision that he would no longer attend any official governmental ceremony, uh, event, until there was a satisfactory investigation into these murders. Now, one of the significant uh, uh, repercussions of the timing of this decision, of course, was that there was just a national election, and that July would be the inauguration of the new president, General Humberto Romero. But Oscar Romero, no relation, (laughs) insisted until these murders are investigated I will attend no ceremony. And so we have glimpses of this profound change that comes forth and then continues through in his three years as Archbishop. Just days after the Grande assassination. A girls' school, the Colegio El Sagrado Corazón, decided to stop classes for several days and concentrate their readings on church documents, on the Latin American bishops' documents uh, from Medellín, for instance, on poverty, etc., in order to uh, reflect on this event. Once again, some parents were concerned and came to the archbishop expecting the same response that they had had years earlier concerning the Externado San Jose. But this time, uh, Monsignor Romero responded that this was the teaching of the church, that the justice and the injustice of this act needed to be revealed for what it was, and so defended the colegio. During his ministry, he continued to call upon all members of the society to a conversion, but also to the society itself as a transformation. That new theology that he was so suspicious of, he began to listen to and even embrace, so that the John Sobrino that he um, accused in his letter became one of his most important theological consultants. Sobrino would draft one of his pastoral letters and his most important speech in Louvain. The shy, withdrawn Romero was replaced by one who was constantly consulting others. In the preparation for his third pastoral letter, he sent a survey out throughout the country, parishes, uh, catechists, priests, religious all responding to this survey gave him the material that he could then write his pastoral letter from. He didn't want to write his letter isolated from the church, but as a voice for that church. And so many had christened him with the name La Voz de los Sin Voz, the voice of the voiceless. Perhaps uh, one of the most marked differences was this tragic event that had happened in Santiago de Maria. One evening, members of the National Guard uh, knocked on the house uh, of this village. Four men were taken and killed. Two young boys who ran to defend their fathers were killed as well, some shot, some with machetes. It was a horrific scene. These men had been catechists in a formation center that the archdiocese had set up. And for that, they were deemed subversive and murdered. Bishop Romero at the time went quickly with Cesar Heres, the Jesuit provincial, and seeing those bodies and seeing the tearful stories of the wives and mothers, Romero wrote a scathing letter to the president, President Molina at the time, uh, demanding justice for these murders. But when his priests said, Monsenor, we need a public stand, we need you to make a public condemnation, he refrained. He said, "I, I don't want to cause scandal. Let me handle this. In back channels, I know the president, I will write him. This cautious response to this grave injustice is in marked contrast to his response to the grande murder and la misa única. But perhaps the, the best testimony we have of Romero's conversion comes in his own words. On the car ride back from Tres Calles, he said this uh, to Cesar Jerez, who had asked him about Tres um, that incident. Um, and he said, I was born into a poor family. I've suffered hunger. I know what it's like to work from the time you're a little kid. When I went to seminary and started my studies, I spent years and years absorbed in my books and I started to forget where I came from. I started creating another world. When I went back to El Salvador, they made me the bishop's secretary in San Miguel. I was a parish priest there for 23 years, but I was still buried in paperwork. Then they sent me to Santiago Maria, and I ran into extreme poverty again. Those children that were dying because of the water they were drinking, Those campesinos killing themselves in the harvests. You know, Father, when a piece of charcoal has already been lit once, you don't have to blow on it much to get it to flame up again. So yes, I changed, but I also came back home again. Monsignor Romero sees his own conversion as a kind of coming home but it's a coming home in which things have been rearranged. The furniture is in different places now. Monsignor Romero had always been very compassionate to those who were poor, but now the reality of his country was reconfigured so that sin was the proper naming of this great injustice that occurred in his country. And as sin required that the church respond to it. His vision had widened in a way that uh, many in our own time have come to discover. As we see so many problems in our society that have deep social and structural components to them, it requires a widening of our vision. I think of the American monk and mystic Thomas Merton When he talks about that experience, that famous experience that he has in Louisville, Kentucky, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of a shopping district, he says, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. This passage occurs in Merton's famous book, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, and we see in Merton's own ministry this move from that powerful experience that brought him to the Trappist Monastery, but then expanded his vision so that he would write powerfully about racism, about nuclear war, about the need for interreligious dialogue. That is a profound realization for the church in the 20th and into the 21st century and i would argue that romero's conversion marks that change in vision that expansion that seeing anew but also that coming home that incarnational vision that requires us to see beyond borders to see the power of God working throughout the world, and, of course, the challenges to human dignity, the challenges to human life around that globe as the church's responsibility as well. Of course, when it takes up that challenge, awakening, as John Sovrino would say, from unreality, it may be the unreality of books, it may be the unreality of of our own existence as we are so sheltered uh, from much... Uh, of the world's problems. It requires an engagement of faith and politics. And in Monsignor Romero's ministry, it certainly uh, did. Romero was Archbishop in a very complex social situation. The church had many sectors to which it had to respond be it the oligarchy, the security forces, rural campesinos, an urban poor, a middle class. The church had many constituencies that it needed to listen to and respond to and to proclaim the gospel to. And within these social sectors, then, Romero mapped his own uh, plan for the archdiocese. Of course, within the first six months of his ministry as archbishop, Another priest was assassinated, Father Alfonso Navarro. And so there came to be talk about a persecuted church, catechists whose lives were threatened. I know one woman who was a part of Rutilio Grande's ministry in Aguilares. In talking with the campesinos of that region, they did not know how to read or write or count. And so after they spent 14, 16 hour days harvesting coffee beans, they'd bring them to the scales and really had no power to negotiate whether they were being treated fairly, paid fairly, or not. So the church began a small literacy program teaching these campesinos to count, to read and write. Within weeks it was successful as they began to press for the just wages that were owed them. And of course, with successes like those, came the response. In the middle of the night, her door was kicked in. She's was taken, a hood placed over her, and she was thrown in the trunk of a car. Driven away, and when that hood was removed, she found herself in a, in a kind of dungeon, a, a cell. She had no idea where she was. And for the next several days, actually, she doesn't know how long it was, because she never saw the sun and no clocks, she endured horrific torture, her torturers asking her who she worked with and naming people and confirming that they were collaborators. Finally, she was left in a pile of bodies who had also undergone this treatment. By her good fortune, there was somebody passing in the distance who heard crying crying of a baby. You see, she was eight and a half months pregnant as she endured this treatment, and it induced labor. And she says, my baby saved my life. The baby would pass away days later. But this is just one story among many, and a reminder that her cry was teaching people to read, to write, and to count and that this was a ministry that the Church had taken on. Not everyone agreed with Monsignor Romero's assessment that the Church was being persecuted. Even fellow members of the Salvadoran Bishops' Conference criticized him. As Bishop Alvarez Ramirez would say, There is no persecuted church. There are some sons of a church that, wanting to serve, lost their way and put themselves outside the law. Romero would spend three years in deep, deep conflicts with fellow members of the bishops' conference. Perhaps uh, the most direct and clear statement about faith and politics in Romero's ministry was the speech that he gave in Belgium just weeks before he was assassinated. It's entitled The Political Dimension of Faith from the Perspective of the Option for the Poor. And in it, Romero explores this question of the political dimension of faith. And one of the key ideas he sets forth is that it is not a question of if as regards to politics, Look at the root of the word politics, the polis, the city. The church has always had a place in the life of the city, in the life of the polis. And so it has always had a political calling. In fact, when he was criticized for declaring the Misa Unica, people scandalized, how could you make this this mass, a political, uh, politicized this mass, he, he, he responded, this is the life of the church. This was a priest. These were sons of the church who were killed. And when criticized about boycotting the president's inauguration, Romero responded, when was it not political for the archbishop to attend a presidential inauguration? It had always been. The question was, not the if, but the how. Whose interests were being supported? Whose viewpoints were being legitimated? And this was a great transformation in Romero's ministry. A church, he said in his second pastoral letter, that needs to be the body of Christ in history, in the world. But what world? We have many accounts of what the world looks like. And for Romero, we know the world by looking at the world of the poor. Much like the weakest link reveals the true strength of the chain, for Romero, it is the world, the situation of the poor, that reveals the state, the health of the poor society of the world and gives the church its mission that broken body of christ as he says needs to be ministered to now for some this sounds like uh, reductionism but for monsignor romero he always held to the concept of transcendence of course it was transcendence understood in a new way. The element of transcendence, he says, that ought to raise the church toward God can be realized and lived out only if it is in the world of men and women. It is a transcendence that should lead the church not away from the world, but into the world at its depths, recognizing the mystical presence of God there and responding in its mission. And so, in trying to configure, what what does then, if it is just a question of the how, what guides the church in its discernment of its politics, of its engagement in the polis? For that, Monsignor Romero turns to the example of Jesus in the Gospels. And he outlines three actions in particular and embodied them in his ministry. The first was the denunciation of sin. Christ denounces sin in the Gospels. And for Romero, there was no clearer denunciation of sin than that which took place at the pulpit in the cathedral each Sunday. There, Romero's homilies became uh, this remarkable place where many could hear the reality of their country. Romero was a very organized thinker, and if you go through his homilies, they're very structured. They always, we begin with three points, very Trinitarian. Do the scripture readings, and he'd go through his main points on the scripture readings. Then he'd move on to the life of the church, and he'd talk about different things that were going in different parishes and in different dioceses around the country. But then he also included what he called the events of the week. And there, many citizens who had come to the archdiocese to talk about disappearances, abuses, massacres, would find their notice voiced by the archbishop, who demanded justice, who demanded a reckoning for these atrocities. Monsignor Romero's homilies became so popular, in fact, they were broadcast over the radio. And as one person said, you could go through any town, walk down the main road, and hear Monsignor's homily and not miss a word. Because as you walk down, you'd hear from the windows of houses, from the windows of cars. Everyone was listening, supportive or not of what Romero had to say. And in a country whose news was suppressed, whose media was controlled, the church became an important voice for the reality of the country. A second moment in Christ's ministry that Romero pointed to was the proclamation of the good news. The Greek word for gospel is euangelion, good news. And for Romero, the mission of the church is a proclamation of good news. And it is an embodiment of that good news. With so much violence in the country at the time, Romero asked a team of young lawyers to form a group, Socorro Judicial, that would document human rights abuses. It would later take on the name Tutela Legal. That work was crucial. It was extremely dangerous. But if the Archdiocese got news of an event, a kidnapping, a massacre, these lawyers would go and, and document, take pictures, make interviews, do whatever they could. That work was so important that at the end of the Civil War, when the United Nations Truth Commission published its report, many of its records were based on those compiled by the Archdiocese and Socorro. Now, some might say, documenting human rights abuses, this isn't the work of the church. But for Romero, it was. It was such a dire need in his country, and no one else was able to do it. And so he discerned this path for the church. He also supported organizations like Comadres, an organization of women who had had relatives who were disappeared. In such a society, a group of women could easily be dismissed in chauvinism. But with the support of the archdiocese, with the legitimization of the archdiocese, these women could have their testimonies be heard, and the disappearances of their loved ones could be investigated. Denouncing sin, proclaiming good news, and yes, enduring persecution. The photo there is of Eugenio Alas. He and his brother Jose Inocencio or Chencho Alas were two founders of some of the earliest base communities in El Salvador. He's holding in his hand in, in his hands the poster, the white hand. It's a death threat. It was a signature of one of the many death squads that were operative in the country. If you received the white hand, either in a notice like that or painted on your car or on the wall of your house, you knew you were a target of assassination. This time in El Salvador meant way too many martyrs. After its editorial criticizing the collapse of discussions about land reform, the UCA was bombed dynamite Monsignor Romero even had a sense of his own life being in jeopardy as the death threats begin to pile up at the very end of 1979 he spoke to his friend Salvador who'd been his driver for so long and he said you know I can't let you drive me anymore if I'm killed I don't want anyone else to suffer as well he had such a sense that it was a possibility And in the Ignatian retreat he took, just weeks before he would be killed, once again, he remonstrated himself. I fear I don't have the courage to follow through. I'm scared of being killed. (laughs) And yet he notes, but if God's will is for me to continue, I must. As I said before, we have the testimony not just of Romero's martyrdom, but of the many priests and others who were killed during his ministry. And his homilies during these martyr funeral masses are a treasure of reflection on martyrdom itself. Martyrs that he called messengers of reality. For if in his address he said that the world of the poor teaches us what our world is like, it is especially the proclamation of the martyrs that are messengers of this reality, that those who have paid with the price of their own lives tell us something important. Romero called all members of the church to be a microphone, a speaker for God, and the martyrs themselves are this important speaker as well. One of the controversies that occurred during the long process of Romero's canonization, was the consideration of his uh, assassination. Was it, in the traditional criterion, odium fidei, a murder in the hatred of the faith, or was it simply a political murder? The naming of Romero as a martyr confirms that it is the way that he lived his faith, that drew that hatred. It is his understanding and incarnation of the gospel that drew that opposition, that hatred, that ultimately cost his life. It is, in some sense, not just an odium fidei, but an odium amoris that Monsignor Romero demonstrates in the tragic last moments of his life. Father Gustavo Gutierrez, Peruvian priest, knew Monsignor Romero and would call him, sometimes visit him as he came up from Peru and and was passing through El Salvador. And he told me the story of their last conversation. It was February of 1980. And they were having a, a pleasant conversation. And at the end, in Spanish, very often you say goodbye by saying, cuídate. And so... Father Gutierrez um, said, Well, Monseñor, cuídate. Utter silence on the other end of the phone. And after this pause, Romero responded, You know, Gustavo, if I really were to take care of myself, I would have to leave my country. But I can't. A week later, In March 24 of 1980, Monsignor Romero would be assassinated. The previous day, March 23rd, he gave what is perhaps his most famous cathedral homily in which he turned to members of the National Guard and telling them that the command of any human is not greater than the command of God, that they were killing their brothers and sisters, and that in the name of God he begged them, He pleaded with them. He ordered them to stop the repression. The radio operators of the homily, as soon as Romero uttered those famous words, got huge amounts of static on their radio broadcast. Now, it had been a difficult time because, in addition to bombing the transmitter of the radio station, there had also been attempts to jam its signal. And several of the homilies were not heard because of the jamming of the radio signal. And so these operators thought, oh no, they've done it again. Just when he had uttered these powerful words. Only to realize that it was the ovation that the congregation gave him that created all of the static on uh, that transmission. It was the next day in that small chapel in this hospital for cancer patients that this religious order of women had given Romero a small room. No palace, just a humble room, and this small chapel where he would celebrate this uh, small mass. It was an anniversary mass of a woman who had passed away a year earlier. It was announced with a small ad in the newspaper, and it was said that the assassins then knew where he would be the exact place and the exact time. He was killed with one bullet, an assassin's bullet, an exploding shell. What do we make of Monsignor Romero's legacy and its relationship to Christian faith today? I'd want to start by saying what it isn't in two ways. The first is that Monsignor Monsignor Romero does not represent a kind of abstract middle way. He was far from abstract. He was, as the Holy Father, Pope Francis has said, a pastor who smelled of his sheep. He was engaged with his people. And as much as, as we laud him now as a saint, we also need to reckon with the fact that there was so much internal opposition to Romero within the very church he loved. His funeral mass at the cathedral was attended by only one bishop of the entire Salvadoran Bishops' Conference. That division is something that we need to preserve as part of his legacy and not soften the edges of. Moreover, he doesn't represent a kind of sentimental peace, a sentimental love that forgets the past. The importance of historical memory is key. Romero, who tried to remember so many suffering bodies in his own time, calls us to do the same. But positively, I think we can take away three things and I'm going to use three uh, important lines from our tradition. The first comes from the liturgy. Huh? Agnus Dei qui tollis peccata mundi. Monsignor Romero's legacy is to recognize with new eyes the sin of the world and our calling to participate in its being removed the taking away of the sin of the world. And perhaps the sins are different than they were in Romero's time. We see the gravity, for instance, of of gang violence in El Salvador today, of the mining and water issues. And yet the call is the same, to remove the sin of our world and to discern that sin beyond our immediate borders. From Irenaeus, we have the statement that came from the Christological controversies of the early centuries of Christianity, quad non est assumptum non est sanatum, that which is not assumed is not saved. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incarnational assertion for the full humanity and full divinity of Christ, and just as God became fully human in the person of Jesus Christ, so Romero's legacy is a call for the church to be fully incarnated in the reality of this world. Romero called the church the body of Christ in history, and he enacted a politics of incarnation in his ministry, One that we need to take up today and incarnate in our different context, in our different ways. We don't look simply for a cookie-cutter example to do the same thing he did. We look at the example of incarnating the gospel in our society uh, that he leaves behind. And another saying of Irenaeus was, Gloria Dei Vivens Homo. The glory of God is the living person. But Romero in a homily famously changed it to gloria dei vivens pauper. The glory of God is the living poor. The martyrs who are witnesses of reality, they show how God is present with those who are weakest, those who are most vulnerable. And so they present a challenge to the church to be with them, to stand in solidarity with them, to go, as Pope Francis has said, to the peripheries. Monsignor Romero is an icon for our times. The great teaching of the Eastern Church is the veneration of icons that we see and yet we see through. They are to be seen through to the glory of God. And that's how I think Romero would want to be remembered as an icon whose image allows us to penetrate through him to God. Now, he is everyone's saint. Many said, oh, who cares about canonization? He's been a saint in El Salvador for years. I had to disagree. I understand that motivation, but there was something at least for me, being in St. Peter's and seeing him truly be a global, he is now everyone's saint, both as a model and as a challenge. He cannot be ignored. And as such, we have the challenge to carry on his legacy. In Spanish, the word to follow is seguir, and we are called to be seguidores, followers of Christ. But if you attach the prefix pro, proseguir, it means to carry forward, to continue. And so ultimately, Romero is an icon and a saint for our times, and we carry through his legacy precisely as followers of Christ who carry forward the mission of Christ to denounce sin, to proclaim good news, especially to the poor, And even if need be, endure persecution for that. That's a robust legacy and a deep challenge, but we have a remarkable saint to guide us. Thank you.